we all know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We know that the weapons of spiritual warfare that God equips us with is mighty. Mighty for bringing down those strongholds. We know in Ephesians chapter 6 that Paul goes through a list of those weapons in order that we would be thoroughly equipped for the battle. But Peter, in this fourth chapter of his first epistle, he speaks about a weapon. A weapon that is powerful, a weapon that is going to not only work against the enemy, but bring about a most significant change in your life and my life. So let's look there. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, Messiah suffering in behalf of us in the flesh. So he suffered in the flesh. And pay attention to this next phrase. And you, that is you and me, and you, the same mindset, this next phrase, arm yourselves. Now, that term for arming oneself derives from a word in the noun form for a weapon. So when we suffer, we are being equipped for spiritual battle. And notice the benefit that comes from this. He says in this same verse, because the one who suffers in the flesh, meaning in this body, the one who suffers in the flesh ceases to sin. Now, we all struggle with sin. And we may desire not to sin. We may pray, God, help me to walk obediently. But until you and I are willing to suffer for our faith, we're going to struggle. But when we are willing to become that pleasing sacrifice, when we're willing to live out our life in submissiveness to whatever God places us in, then and only then are we going to know victory whereby he says we will cease from sin. Verse 2. For no longer the desires of men, that is human desires. He is sharing with us that when we are willing to suffer for faith, there's a change. Something moves to the past. We enter into a condition where what was is in the past, no longer to be relevant in our life. For no longer the desires of men, but here's the change. But he says, the will of God and the time that remains in the flesh, meaning in this body, the time that remains in this body in order to live, we are going to live noticeably different. He says in verse 3, we need a change in mindset. Understanding for sufficient, 
for enough for us was this past time of our life that according to the will of the nations. Now, remember that term, we talked about it earlier. It speaks about those who have no covenantal relationship with God. When you are in a covenantal relationship with God, things are going to be different. You are going to have a different mindset. You are going to have access to different provisions. And the outcome is going to be that God is going to work. God is going to edify. God is going to strip away those things which are harmful for us. God is a loving God that wants to see changes in our life that benefit us. And here's the key. For eternity. And the problem is many times we are short-sighted. What does that mean? Many times we are earthly-minded. And we think about these present-day troubles, hardships, suffering, pain, and we want to run away from that when God understands these things will have eternal dividends. So he says, enough already with your former life when you lived according to the will of the nations, putting forth, producing those things that's not pleasing. And then he says, when you went after, and he describes it, those things that are sensual, those desires that are rooted in lust, drunkenness, communal activities of immorality, those things of carousing, seeking, trouble. And he summarizes, and this summary tells us what the problem is. He closes out this verse with speaking about those abhorrent idolatries. Now, when you study God's word, we see especially the prophets. They spoke extensively about idolatry. When we look in the book of Revelation, we see that John speaks a lot about the consequences of idolatry and the mindset that idolatry is rooted in. And what the prophets and what John tells us is that idolatry is always rooted in self. It's always a pursuit of your desires. And he says, this is abhorrent to him. And we see a dichotomy, a change, a difference between the mindset of one who walks in covenantal fidelity and one who walks according to the world. When we make that decision to be obedient to God's instructions, those of the world, they don't understand. And that's why it says, look at verse 4. In which they think it's strange that you do not run in that same, and we have a word, maybe your Bible says debauchery. It's simply talking about ungodly behavior, but there's an additional word. And that word is a word that speaks of overflowing. When we begin on that downward path of living in a way that is against 
the statutes of God, the commandments of God, we unleash that which overflows in abundancy that is displeasing to God. And just like we see something that we open up and the water begins to flow and it's hard to stop it, this is what happens to a lot of people. They find themselves unable to control their behavior. They are, are drowning in sin. This is what Peter is speaking about. And notice the outcome. The end of verse 4 has a most significant word. It's the word blasphemy. Now, why is that important? Well, if you do a good study of Revelation, you will find that the spirit of the Antichrist is a blasphemous spirit. And Peter is communicating to us that we have to make a decision. We are either going to go the way of the world, meaning we are going to be very prepared for what the Antichrist wants to do, or we're going to go the way of the kingdom and suffer. The easy way in the short term is to follow the world. That's what your flesh, that's what your personal desires, your emotion, is always going to lead you to do. And unfortunately today, there is a, a movement within the believing community that believes that what God says about the last days can be changed. Now, where do they get that? Well, they get it from the same sources that I believe that, that Judaism, in most expressions of it, speak of. And that is a scenario. See, in Judaism of the rabbis, they look at prophecy very different than you and I do. We understand that all of God's word is going to be fulfilled. Every prophecy is going to take place. Judaism says, not so fast. They see different possible scenarios. And what they see is what they want to see. That all the bad has been canceled out. These things that of suffering, the battle of Gog and Magog, they see all of this doesn't have to happen. That is one scenario. But they are believing, they are teaching that the good prophecies, those things that speak about a utopia, God simply at any moment coming and bringing about a change, a glorious change, that's what they're expecting. And many within the church believes that the body of believers are going to bring purity into this world and prepare it for the return of Messiah. Now that may make us feel good. They don't want to think about what the prophets clearly teach. That the worst time, the worst time for God's people, both his New Testament people and his Old Testament people, is in the last days. We see Messiah taught and taught and taught that in the last days, there is going to be a time of persecution, 
because of one's faith. And then after that time comes to the end, Messiah spoke about that several times in Matthew 24, when he speaks about the end, the end, the end, then the end will come. What end is he speaking about? The end of disciples in this world. When the blessed hope will come about. And then we're going to see a shift. That persecution of believers will end. And because Israel, because Israel rejects the Antichrist when he commits that abomination of desolation, Israel's going to move in, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah chapter 30, to Israel's worst time, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, Israel's worst time of suffering. The problem is this. In our human minds, we don't like that. We don't want that. So we choose a false theology that says that won't happen. I'm going to believe in something different. And when we believe in that which is different from the word of God, the enemy will manipulate us, deceive us, position us in a location of defeat. So these people think it's strange. We behave differently. We don't run with them. We don't have that blasphemous spirit the Antichrist does. Verse 5. See, we know something that they don't want to talk about. And what is that? Look at verse 5. It says, the ones who will give an account to him who is prepared to bring judgment. Now, one of the things that, that I do is when I talk to an organization or a, a local congregation or a seminary, I ask them about, what's your view of the judgment of God? Now, when we do this so frequently in other countries, and the truth is the same here, the common response is, we believe in a New Testament God. What they're saying is, we believe that judgment was satisfied and is no longer going to be displayed by God because of the cross. Now that's true for his people. But we see those people who belong to God, that pathway is narrow. It's difficult. Few who find it. They don't want to think about what Peter is saying. Look again at verse 5. He says, the ones who will give an account to him who's prepared, who has judgment of both the living and the dead. You know what that means? No one avoids judgment. No one. Now, when we read further, look at verse 6. For this, the fact that there is judgment, it says, because of this, it was proclaimed unto the dead. And here, we're going to see something. He speaks of the living and the dead. Those who are alive spiritually and those who are dead spiritually. He wants no one to be lost. That's why we see, for example, in Matthew 24 and verse 14, 
before that end, before that outpouring of God's wrath begins, Messiah says, it is necessary, that important phrase, it is absolutely a requirement from God that this gospel of the kingdom, I like that phrase, this gospel of the kingdom, go forth to all the nations as a testimony that it is proclaimed to all the nations and only after that, the end, that's our end, being removed from here, will begin. And we are removed before God's judgment begins to fall. These people, they don't want to think about giving account. So they just say, there is no more judgment day. But Peter doesn't agree with this. He's talking about judgment after the cross. And what does he say? Look again at verse 6. For this, it was proclaimed to the dead in order to judge. And we have a unique construction in Greek. It's known by the two Greek words, men, day, which means, and they're separated. On one hand, this, but on the other hand, that. What's he talking about? On one hand, he is going to judge men according to the flesh. What does that mean? He is going to deal with sin. Flesh, sin. But, meaning on the other hand, he is going to judge those who are alive according to the Spirit of God. Meaning this, this judgment according to the Spirit of God is He is going to utilize His Spirit to bring order, His order into our life. So our judgment is not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of rewards. Has He not told us over and over to store up our treasures in heaven where there is not going to be loss? This is what he's referring to. And then he encourages us, verse 7. But the end of all is at hand. What do you think about that? The end of all is drawing near. The question that we have to ask is this. Are we ready for that? When it says the end of all, it's talking about this creation. This creation is ultimately going to be destroyed by God. Why? He's got something better. So, the end of all has come. In light of that, it's growing near. He says, be sound-minded also. To be sober-minded, why? For prayer. Interesting. If we don't have the right perspective, if we're not thinking correctly, if we're not interested in what we should be interested in and committed to, we cannot pray effectively. And I think that that biblical truth plagues the body of believers today. That we're praying for one thing, and God is leading in a very different direction. We're thinking one thought. God says prophetically, 
This is what I promise. And what God does, he reveals first to the prophets. Why? So we can be in agreement with him. He says, look at verse 8. But before all, we might translate it in our mind, but above all things, he says, love fervently one another. What should come into your mind? The spirit of the law. Paul says, I can summarize all the law in one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, when we are walking, we're not saved by the law. But when we are walking in obedience to God's commandments, we are going to have one of the ways that, and I agree with them in this matter, the rabbis teach that the commandments reveal God's expectations. What he expects us to do and what he expects us not to do. It is through the commandments. And by the way, the message of the law and the message of the Holy Spirit is the same. Why do we know that? Those who walk not in the flesh, but according to the Spirit, fulfill the righteousness of the law. Now, the law gives us the objective, but it's the Spirit that gives us the power to fulfill that call, those expectations from God. So when he says, above all things, one another have fervent love for, because love, and this is such an important verse, because love covers literally will cover, it's a promise, because love will cover an abundant of sin. What does he mean by that? Well, when someone sins against you, you have a decision to make. The normal response, you return evil for evil, insult for insult. That's not what God wants. We walk in love. And when we return love to that which is evil, what can happen? This, this occurrence of, of sin, usually one sin leads to what? Another sin. It leads to another and another. But when we respond to sin by loving, that, that chain reaction is ended. That's what he means when he says love covers a multitude of sin. When we are sinned against and we respond in love, it can end this round. It doesn't have to lead to another and another and another. This is what he means. Love covers a multitude of sin. So again, verse 9, he says, Love strangers. What does that mean? Be hospitable. Have that spirit of hospitality. Now, where do we see that in the Old Testament? The best example is in Parsha Vayera, the book of Genesis in 18. Remember, remember Avraham? He's just been circumcised at a very old age. 
We learn from another passage in the scripture that the third day is the worst day, the most painful day. It's in the heat of the afternoon. And he sees three men, unique, three men walking by. Now, the parasha, that Torah portion, is called Vayera because if you read it all, it says, and the Lord appeared to Abraham. How did he do it? Three men walking by. Now, Abraham didn't know this is a manifestation of Almighty God in my presence. He simply saw three men walking by. And what did this old man do that was a hundred? He got up and he ran unto them. But there's a very important phrase. From the door of his tent. If there's a door, what does it require? A mezuzah. That little box. Now I realize that that mitzvah came long after Abraham. But with the word of God, there is no time. It is to teach us something that the word of God will reveal to us. And that is that location is where we place that, that little box and there's a message. Those who dwell in that home with that mezuzah, you can find hospitality. They will welcome you. Well, these three men intended to go by Abraham. Just think of this. 100-year-old man runs them down and implores them to come into his house that he might minister to them. It's that same spirit, that spirit that is produced out of faith. He says, love strangers and do so without grumbling, no complaining. Just as each of you have received a gift for one another, it, meaning that gift, minister, meaning use it, practice it, put it into action. Why? He says, when you minister that gift, you are as a good steward. It's in the plural, good stewards. Meaning we are good managers of what God has given to us. Ask yourself, am I a good steward of the resources, the gift that God has given to me? Many times people have been a believer for many years. And we get the question, can you help me locate, identify my spiritual gift? If you don't know your spiritual gift, you're not utilizing it. You're not managing it well. He says, look at verse 11. This spiritual gift manifests itself through a variety of God's grace. Now verse 11. And if it's to speak, you have a gift to speak, then speak according to the oracles of God, his word. If it's to minister, minister from the strength that God provides. In order that, and here's the objective, in order that in all things God is glorified. Now, if you set as your daily objective, God, use me 
to glorify you. I assure you, that will be a prayer that God answers in your life. So simple. Every day, God used me this morning, afternoon, same thing. God used me this afternoon in order that I might glorify you. And then we see something consistent. Whether it's worship, whether it's knowledge, whether it's service, it only comes about through faith in, what does the scripture say? Through Messiah Yeshua. To him, I love this verse, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful verse. Look at verse 12. Beloved ones, do not think it's odd. Another way it can be translated. Do not be surprised that in you or among you there is fire. Now, he uses this word fire with the concept of trials. So he tells all of us here, if you are a believer, you want to serve God, don't think it's odd. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. That's not the exception. That's the norm. I think of the prophets. How the word of God came upon them and all they did was speak it. And they were hated. In fact, Messiah says, which of the prophets was not persecuted? Can't think of any. They did not like God's revelation. And if you are moved by God's revelation, that's the, the objective of your life is to obey it. You are going to be persecuted. So he says, don't think it's strange that, that in you are these fire that is accompanied by trials that come upon you as something that is strange, odd, peculiar has happened. Verse 13. But rather, just as you have shared in the Messiah's suffering, he says what? Rejoice. It is a wonderful privilege to suffer with Messiah. And when we endure that persecution, that pain for our faith, he tells us, you rejoice. In order that also at the revealing of, of his glory, you will rejoice. And then he adds another term. You rejoice when you are being persecuted, and you are going to have a greater joy at the revealing of Messiah. When that end comes at the time of the blessed hope, he says you're going to rejoice, and then he uses a term, which means to rejoice in the full measure. Now, you may have experienced joy, but I doubt 
that you have experienced that type of joy in what God says is his full measure. Verse 14. Now, I've checked over 30 translations, and none of it translates this next part, verse 14, in a literal way. It speaks about being insulted because of the name of Messiah, the name of, of Yeshua. But what does this word literally mean, to be insulted? It has the word teeth in it. And your Bibles have that? It's a word that means two Greek words put together, meaning to show teeth. What does that mean? Well, the image here is this. You ever go and see an animal, maybe a dog, and you come up and that dog doesn't really want to see you, and it growls and it shows you its teeth. It doesn't like what you are about to do. And that teeth is a warning against you. This is what those of the world behave. This is the image that Peter gives. So he says, if they show you their teeth because of the name of Messiah, what does he say? Blessed ones. When they hate you, when they're getting ready to pounce on you, attack you because of his name, he says, you're blessed. You're doing it right. That's my expectation for you. Now, we don't have to seek that. Faithfulness will bring the enemy to us. Did you know that? You walk in faithfulness, and people are going to get all of a sudden real offended. All the immorality that we see in this nation and others' nation as well. The world is at peace with that. But I had someone share with me this morning that he was working in the census in his state. And he, at one of the meetings, just shared a little bit about his faith and the gospel. And he received a warning from the government. You can't do this. That's the government showing them their teeth, showing you their teeth. They don't want faithfulness. They want immorality. So he says, when this happens, you're blessed because the glory and the Spirit of God rest upon you. What is he speaking about? The spirit and the glory of God resting upon you. What's he speaking of? An anointing. See, we, God, give me that anointing. That doesn't work that well. Just doesn't work. But when you are in the midst of serving God, when there's a spiritual attack against you, that's when the anointing falls upon you. Now, it's interesting because that word for anointing, falling upon, resting upon you, that's literally what it says. Michael, I think he went to bed, but, but if he was here, there's this term in Hebrew, le'aniach. Now, you know about tefillin, the phylacteries, those boxes that you bind on your forearm and 
your forehead? Well, the term, when you set it upon it, it's le'atniach, which is to rest. And I believe that Peter is speaking to Jewish individuals that would understand the basic use of this term. It's related to laying the commandments upon you. See, those phylacteries, those tefillin, it's all about the commandments of God. I place them upon my forehead, so I think according to his commandments. I place them upon my forearm, so I behave according to the commandments of God. And what does God do? He says, when you are serving me, the spirit, his spirit, his glory is going to rest upon you and me. According to, and he's going to say the difference, that same construction, mende, that dichotomy, two different outcomes. According to some, them, it is going to be blasphemous. Anything that relates to God, they want to blaspheme. But according to you, it is going to be for glory. It is going to manifest the glory of God. Verse 15. For. Do not suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as one that two words for meddling in someone's life in an annoying way. Don't know how to translate that in a simple way, but those are the two words. Don't be one that murders, that steals, or who meddles in people's life in an annoying way. Now, when I say annoying, it's not from their perspective, but from God's perspective. There are people that they want to get involved in your life, not because of the things of God. They have their own objective. They have their own plan. And he says, this is not what a child of God is about. But notice the con contrast. But if as, and here's the word, Christian or Messianic, but as a Messianic follower, a Christian, he says, do not, do not be ashamed. But rather, he says, let the glory of God be in this part. Let the glory of God fall in this area, this location. Verse 17, because the time for the judgment to begin is upon the house of God. Meaning God is going to judge his people first, and there's a reason for that. This judging that begins with the house of God is for the purpose of refining. It is that sifting that, that Messiah spoke of. That, that activity that God does to bring about a change, a glorious change. It can be painful. It says judgment, but it's for the right outcome. It begins first 
with us. But then he says, what will the end be upon those who are disobedient to God? Very different objective in regard to his judgment. God judges all people, but the purpose is very, very different. Verse, verse 18, he says here, and if the righteous one is saved with difficulty, this is another example of Calve Homer. He says, if the righteous one is saved with difficulty, the ungodly, also the sinner, how will it be manifested? Now, God's able to, but understand what he's saying. Why does he put that verse there at this time? What is going to bring about a change in this, this sinner? Suffering. Suffering is going to give him a different perspective. When we suffer for righteousness, we're blessed. When we suffer because of our disobedience, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to change. But God is faithful in both groups. Verse, verse 19. So that also the one who suffers according to the will of God as the faithful creator. Now, what's he talking about here? I mean, we always have to pay attention to how God speaks of himself in his word. So why speak about this faithful creator? Now, usually, when creation is spoken of, we think about the past. In the beginning, we ought not. As believers, we know something. God is not done with his glorious work of creation. If you are a good study student of the prophets, you know something. The prophets speak about the kingdom of God as the second creation. It uses the term God stretching out the heavens, God putting things in order. He's going to do that for the kingdom reality. And therefore, look again at verse 19. So that also the one suffering according to the will of God as the faithful creator, let us commit ourselves, meaning our very soul, let us commit our very essence unto what? Good works. Now, let me conclude this session by saying this. It is only when we believe that God's going to establish a kingdom that we are going to be committed to good works. Again, are we saved by good works? No. Are good works important to God? Yes, they are. Are we doing good works? Not enough. And what's going to bring about a change? When we are truly committed to a kingdom establishment. When you are kingdom-minded, your behavior is going to change. When you're kingdom-minded, God's expectations are going to be of the utmost 
importance to you. Because kingdom-mindedness goes along with wanting to be pleasing to God. And when you're wanting to please God, you are going to be committed to doing the work of God. Now, tomorrow, we see that Peter's going to make a change. Up until this time, he has been speaking to the body of believers, primarily Jewish believers, in a very collective sense. But in chapter 5, that last chapter, he is going to speak primarily to leadership. The leaders of the believers in that first century. And we're going to see that he is not pleased with them. And I believe if Peter was standing here looking at the body of believers, the congregation of the redeemed today, he would be equally displeased. We need to hear what Peter's saying and the changes that must come about in your life and in my life, in the local congregation, because the times, they're changing. The opportunity may be running out. We are approaching, there's prophetic indicators, we are approaching the end. And we need to remember something. It is sad. It is shameful that Satan understands something that most of us don't. Satan knows, the scripture says, he comes down knowing that his time is short. He's working hard. He understands the scarcity of his time remaining. He knows that he's been defeated. And he is going to do all that he can to make as many people as he can to where he's going for eternity. He's committed, unfortunately, to that which is evil. My hope is this, that we as believers, we as the redeemed of the Lord, that we're committed to good. Now, that's not controversial. But when we say, be abounding in good works, a lot of people get uncomfortable with that. Why? Why? We're reading not from the Old Testament. We're studying 1 Peter, that, that prominent disciple. And he has said over and over, this one who, in the Gospels, had the most interaction with Messiah. Front and center. He had to be front and center. And Peter is telling you and me, your conduct matters. It is going to have eternal consequences, not just for you, but for others. And your conduct must be about good works, fulfilling God's expectations, His will. Because as believers... We are called to be instruments that manifest his righteousness. And when his righteousness is established, his glory is revealed. And when it's God's glory is being produced, good things, wonderful things, kingdom things 
we get a foretaste of. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.